episode 374, How to Grade a Health Plan, and a few validated success stories. Today, I speak with Dave Chase. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. So let's put the last, I don't know, 300 episodes of Relentless Health Value into perspective here. The USA wastes about a trillion and a half dollars a year on some combination of paying way too much for low value care, fraud and waste. A trillion and a half dollars down the drain. As my guest Dave Chase says today, if this was a country, what we waste would be the 11th biggest GDP in the world. We could call it healthcareistan. Meanwhile, outcomes aren't anything to brag about on the world stage, and 41% of American adults have medical debt in this country. Also, all across the country, people making all kinds of healthcare decisions to save money that are clinically toxic. Financial toxicity is clinical toxicity, right? You know this already. You listen to the show. I just saw yet another study the other day, actually this one about cancer outcomes and how they are appreciably worse when patients are worried about how much money their treatment will cost. And a lot of people in this country, many people with a Part D plan, commercial insurance with big deductibles, there's a lot of people in this country who cannot afford tens of thousands of dollars in out-of-pocket spend every year. But let's change gears and talk about some good stuff, some inroads that are being made. Let's talk about Rosen Hotels for a moment. Rosen Hotels is a bright spot for sure in all of this. They are a leading indicator of what is possible. Rosen Hotels, which is a hotel chain in Florida, they saved over $450 million in healthcare costs and have healthier, happier employees. They spend 55% less per capita on health benefits, despite having an employee population with significant health challenges. They saved so much money that Rosen was able to set up a scholarship fund so that not only kids of employees and employees themselves, but also kids in the community can go to college. Turnover there is lower, retention is higher, employees are healthier, as I just said. I mean, the ROI of a CEO and a CFO getting engaged and taking back control over their health benefits from third parties, it's huge. Link in the show notes to an article about Rosen and also Dave Chase's TED Talk about Rosen. My guest today, Dave Chase, says that what they did at Rosen Hotels was actually an inspiration for Health Rosetta, which is the organization that he founded to help employers take control of the out-of-control, dysfunctional health benefits market in this country. Dave Chase says that the Health Rosetta community knows something that most don't yet. Dave Chase has said that healthcare is fixed fixable. He said that healthcare actually isn't expensive. Clinicians only receive 27 cents of every $1 that's ostensibly spent on healthcare. What is expensive is price gouging, profiteering, administrative bloat, fraud, and inappropriate treatment. And Dave Chase has also said that we're already investing more than enough money to not only fund world-class healthcare for everyone, but also take all that money from healthcare estan and fund what drives 80% of health outcomes, i.e. income, education, career opportunities, and clean air and water. There is so much money that is being wasted in healthcare that all of this other stuff could be funded if we simply pay what we should be paying. 
Health Rosetta currently has about 5 million lives stewarded through plans managed by their Health Rosetta advisors. That's probably another bright spot right there, 5 million lives. Another bright spot is the work of the Nuka system in Alaska. Link in the show notes to the episode with Dr. Doug Eby. That's episode 312. The Nuka system has won award after award for being one of the best health systems in the country, and it serves a challenging patient population for less money than most Medicaid plans. So here I just mentioned two entities, Rosen Hotels and Nuka, the Nuka system, dealing with, on a good day, patient populations with multiple chronic conditions, high maternal mortality. At Rosen, 56% of their pregnancies are categorized as high risk, which not only has generational human consequences, of course, but is also a notorious budget buster, as Dave Chase has said. There's substance abuse issues. These are patient populations who are doing appreciably better and cost far less than if they were covered by almost any other health plan in this country. Here's yet one more bright spot example company, and that's Pacific Steel. During our conversation today, Dave Chase mentioned that the CFO of Pacific Steel said that when they went from spending $8 million in health benefits a year to spending under $3.5 million, basically cutting their health care costs in less than half, the CFO said, that in order to make that same amount of net income, Pacific Steel would have had to raise their top line sales revenue by 25 to 30%. So, okay, you're a CEO and here's your choice to appease your shareholders or make your own bonus. Option A, go out right now and figure out how to sell 30% more. Or option B, get your healthcare house in order, which may also improve retention if you do it right. I don't know. To me, this doesn't seem like a head scratcher. Two things that Dave Chase also brought up during our conversation that I thought were thought-provoking. First, change is happening regionally and seems to adhere to the so-called rule of three, meaning that if three employers have worked with a qualified employee benefit consultant, EBC, and really fixed up their health benefits, then a cascade will start in that region. And secondly, and I never thought about this before, we spend over $4 trillion through various health plans, employer, ACA, Medicare, Medicaid, and yet we have little to no objective mark of value for how good any given health plan is. The closest thing, as Dave Chase says, might be Medicare Advantage star ratings. To address this problem, Health Rosetta invested seven figures to build a plan grader. This really helps employers make sure that the plan they put in place is a win-win the whole way around. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Dave Chase, welcome back to Relentless Health Value. Great to be back on. Love your show. So it's really an honor. Well, I love what you are doing. So it is equally an honor from my side. So let's just kind of kick right into our conversation here. Before we talk about some of the bright spots that you are seeing and the changes for the better that you're seeing inroads being made, let me ask you this. Why did you start Health Rosetta to begin with? So... People are probably familiar, hopefully, with the Rosen story. They're really the inspiration behind Health Rosetta's purpose, which is to reinvest the trillion and a half dollars that we waste in health and well-being. And if that was a country, what we waste would be the 11th largest economy in the world. We can call it Health Karistan. I think Brian Klepper, on a previous episode of yours, pointed out that 2% of the entire U.S. economy is squandered on non-evidence-based musculoskeletal procedures while simultaneously destroying primary care. If you look at Rosen's, what they've done, they've cumulatively saved $500 million by having great primary care and this kind of plan design. Another episode you had was with Doug Eby of the NUCA model. They go from having the worst health outcomes in America to a system many consider the best in the world. Let me ask you this. If we're talking about the plans which are 
bright spots. It would be easy for an employer to trade one problem for another. Because price and quality in healthcare have so little to do with each other, if we're trying to reduce prices, I could see that we might inadvertently wind up cutting into quality in some way. So how are you at Health Rosetta, where you're just so involved in working on better plan designs, how are you evaluating and measuring which ones are succeeding so that those can be emulated? Yes. It's odd that we have $4 trillion of spend with almost no objective mark of value. The closest thing is the Medicare Advantage programs have some star ratings. What we have done in Health Rosetta, and, and probably the most powerful thing, is we built this community of the people who've been doing it for the longest amount of time that really want to see their work spread as far as possible. They've poured their intellectual property into what works. We have 40 of the most important factors that we've found proved to predict whether a plan will be a high performance plan. And we break it out into eight different areas and we've made a seven figure software investment to essentially create an algorithm that looks at these factors, these 40 factors, and arrive at a 1 to 100 score, both at the component level and the roll-up level. You can think of that almost like as a diagnosis of your health plan and whether it's likely to perform well or not. There are essentially millions of possible different recommendations based on where that health plan stands in order to rectify the shortcomings. And it's incredibly important given what's in, in play right now. You've got this plan grader. And as you said, it's got eight different areas comprising 40 individual factors. The plan is graded on a 1 to 100 score. And then plan sponsors could use this scoring mechanism as a way to incrementally improve. Like they could see that they're sort of falling down in one area and then bolster that aspect of the plan. And it sounds like the idea here is how do you best position your dollars to obtain the best and highest quality care for the people that are in the plan? Like, how do you waste the least? These plan sponsors, you know, all they can see is their one individual plan, right? Like you at Health Rosetta have yeah. a purview over many, many different plans. So it really is a mechanism through which people can learn from each other and see how they're doing relative to, and also probably in an absolute level, on their mission to get the most for, for every dollar spent. And ultimately, as you know, company size, industry, geography, these types of things you can slice and dice. So you can look at pure sets, right? Some people might be a Midwestern manufacturer with 250 to 1,000 employees, and that would might be a good comparison point. So you'd want to compare yourself against like geographies, maybe, as well as demographics. So you mentioned there's eight different areas and 40 factors. Could you just give a sense of like, what are some of these areas that you think are the most important and how these factors might roll up? Yeah, for sure. Number one is look at the contracts. There was a great story you shared in your podcast with Scott Haas, where you had, I think you said, one of my mentors said prices are relevant. He said he'd sell anything for any price as long as he could define the terms of the deal. That really applies here. If you think about that trillion and a half dollars of waste, how is that possible? Well, it's all codified in the contracts that underpin health plans. In a sense, this healthcare stand I mentioned, what we waste is the 11th largest economy in the world, the overall healthcare system. If it was 
a country would be the fourth largest economy of the world. Essentially, the laws of the land of Healthkaristan are these agreements, these contracts. They sit above the plan and you have to do a reset to do procurement rights. So that's number one is just you look at the contracts and there's incredible opportunity. One of the key areas that gets defined in the contracts, which I call kind of the number two, is data practices and data access. You can't manage what you can't measure. I've never seen a business proud of what they're doing, not want to share the data. The laws are very clear that this is your data as a plan sponsor, as an employer, and you need to get access to it. And when organizations say otherwise, you need to really push back on that. With the new laws that have come into effect over the last six months, we found 12 significant areas of compliance requirement. Unlike many areas of compliance, this is actually something that will help your bottom line as an employer, as well as the employees and their families bottom line. So it's a real positive area of compliance in our view. So that would be the, the second, you know, data practice and, and data access. The first area that you were talking about is contracts. And I like how you went right into, you segued right into access to data because a lot of the ways that terms and conditions of these contracts get buried is because they might be evident if someone had the data and could actually see what was going on and look at those line items. But if you obscure the data, then the terms and conditions become all the more obtuse and a plan sponsor can unknowingly be contributing to the gross national product of healthcareistan which is just it's a shocking number it's the 11th largest economy in the entire world it just boggles your mind so the first thing that you you said that a plan sponsor really needs to wrap their heads around is look at the contracts really understand what the terms and conditions are really understand what what you're signing at the bottom of there's just so much opportunity to get taken advantage of effectively so that's number one. Number two, as you said also, and they definitely go hand in hand, ensuring that a plan sponsor has access to the data that these entities they're contracting with are certainly collecting. Because as you said, it's the plan sponsor that's, that has the fiduciary responsibility here. That was just shown again. There was just a lawsuit in which a vendor of a carrier was said not to be the fiduciary. Well, if... if the ASO is not the fiduciary, then that goes right back to the employer, right? So it's really important for plan sponsors to have the data and, as you said, to be in compliance because it's it's at their own risk if they don't have the data and are in compliance. Absolutely. And that fiduciary duty you mentioned, that is a one of the highest duties under the law. And for the officers in the company, that is not a liability that they can expect covered under directors and officers liability, but it's a personal liability they have. That's why it's been taken historically so seriously in the retirement benefits. You don't put your employees 401k into Uncle Bubba's investment fund that's got high fees and terrible returns. And now they're saying you can't put your employees dollars into Uncle Bubba's health plan that's got high fees and terrible returns, which is what we've had. Let me ask you this, Dave. I've had a couple of interesting conversations lately. And the context of those conversations is how difficult it is for employers 
to take charge of their health benefits. One of the reasons cited is the bureaucracy of most employers in which the CHRO is a different person than the CFO. And the CHRO, their main job is to minimize disruption, right? So it could be really disruptive to change health benefits. And the CFO is sort of sitting off to the left, having not a whole lot to do with this. And there's probably legal counsel who may or may not recognize the legal implications here for the officers and directors as you put it. Do you have any advice for how a self-insured employer has successfully navigated that bureaucracy in which the responsibility for the health plan is spread all over the place and nobody necessarily has enough of, of, of an incentive to take the risk, the personal risk, you know, you don't get fired for doing the same thing that you did last year. No one wants to be the one who could be the messenger that potentially gets killed when employees are complaining or or their health care is disrupted. So I just wondered if you have any advice there. Certainly, you know, that was a disruption when I got an iPhone from what I was doing before. So, you know, change is always change. You have to learn something new. But I will often push back on that notion because you look at what could be more disruptive than 30 years of wage gains stolen by the status quo health plans? That's the data. It's incredibly clear for the working and middle class. They haven't seen a net wage gain in 30 years. What could be more disruptive than health plans that if you access them, you're going to likely go into bankruptcy? You know, we're the undisputed world leaders in medical bill-driven bankruptcy, and 70% of those people had so-called insurance. What's more disruptive than the opioid crisis that was the first 20 years were funded and fueled by employee health plans? So I think we need to put it into the proper context. And then, yes, this is the last major area to modernize inside of corporate America. They've modernized supply chain, sales and marketing automation, financials. Anytime you do something like that, there are often consultants that help guide people through and change management. If you look at case studies that we have, say a Pacific Steel, where they went from spending over $8 million five years ago to the last two years, spending under $3.5 million, their CFO said they would have to increase top line sales revenue 25 to 30%. Like This is not small dollars. There's a tremendous opportunity. And when we're talking about financial toxicity, something that removes barriers to care for people who haven't accessed care because they're afraid of it, that's incredibly beneficial for attracting and retaining. You know, I mentioned Rosen Hotels. They're a great plan. They have one-sixth of the level of employee turnover of a typical hotelier, which is the industry they operate in. So there's all kinds of benefits. It just often has been framed in the wrong way. So we've got number one in your plan grader is you're assessing how well the plan does looking through their contracts. Number two, you've got how well does the plan do in ensuring that they have all of the data that they're going to need to make good decisions. What do you got for number three? Go back to PBM, right? That's the first thing that starts to get at the care delivery side. But fortunately, on air quotes, the shenanigans are so extreme there that you don't have to even change the formulary or people pick up their medications, yet get huge savings. There are some really good PBMs out there that operate in an effective manner. And as you've talked about in past episodes, 
there's ways even to to get high value prices out of some of the big PBMs if you know how to procure right. So that's the next piece. And then adding proper primary care and then adding basically alternative provider networking, a lot of direct contracts. Somebody like Pacific Steel went from one of these PPO networks where you're often paying five times Medicare rates to 5,000 direct contracts. They're just a 700 person company when they're located in nine states and 40 locations. They're not some mega employer. The only way you do that is to have incredibly fair and incredibly simple contracts. These are two page agreements that are a win for both parties. So like one of the wins for the provider organizations is they waive all cost sharing for the members. So the provider organization doesn't have to send members into collections or really do some of the nasty stuff that happens to patients in our system. So those are some of the big buckets and tremendous opportunity into all those. Typically, people take it a step at a time. So PBMs are your number three in the plan grader. You're taking a look at which PBM are they maybe using, but more importantly, did they actually succeed with the terms and conditions that are favorable to the, or at least fair to the the plan? If they're just kind of like doing the normal, hey, we're just going to use a PBM, whichever, and sign on the dotted line of whatever contract they handed to us, we're not going to get a very good score in number three. Absolutely. And then number four, adding proper access to PCPs. Could you just get it? What does that look like exactly? How are we making sure members have access to not, as you call them, drive-by PCPs, but somebody that they really can form a relationship with? Yeah, fortunately, after so many years of neglect, that's been recognized. There's been a lot of investment that's gone into that area as well. You certainly know about direct primary care. It's just put it in, remove all barriers. This is a budgetable item. A lot of the things that you benefit from are really straightforward. If you look at some of the immediate savings opportunities, half of ER visits are actually not emergencies. People just can't get access to their primary care doc. And, you know, can we even call it primary care if you can't get into that doc for weeks? And then if you talk to the docs who've been doing a long time, the physician leaders, folks like Rashika Fernanda-Pule, if you actually have a moment to speak with patients and you don't have perverse incentives to get them to high cost, high margin items, almost in every case, if you give people choices like, the lower back pain example I can relate to. I've had that feeling of it feels like a knife in your back. And if you're told the only way to solve that is a drug or surgery, like, okay, bring it on, get it over. But if you're told, hey, here's some exercises we can do right now that can start to give you some immediate relief. It's not going to 100% fix it, but we can get on that journey. These are the types of things that are really straightforward. And if you look at an employer like a Rosen Hotels that's been doing it a long time and has employees with physically demanding jobs, they're prescribing opioids at one-sixth of the level of a typical employer in America. And even after all the awareness around the opioid crisis, we're still prescribing at five and six times the rate of most countries, which is quite sad and remarkable. Yeah. And the weird thing about opioids is people who actually need opioids are getting caught in this net because there's so much unnecessary prescribing that goes on. So like the problem that we have with opioids in this this country is is certainly two-pronged and we're trying to solve it with these overly simplistic, overly 
homogeneous kind of mandates in a way. And a lot of this goes back to, as you just said, it's time with the PCP because it's really easy and it takes a very short period of time to prescribe an opioid, right? And get someone out of your office. It's hard to explain to somebody how to do these exercises or or refer them to somebody who can and, and to help them psychologically as well as physically deal with what could be excruciating pain. In my view and in our view, Proper primary care, kind of fully actualized primary care includes behavioral health and PT, for example. You know, you want to have that right down the hall, make it available. Sometimes behavioral health problems manifest themselves as physical pain. And so if you have the right way of triaging that, you're not exacerbating the situation. And as you said, you can prescribe opioids incredibly easily. And then the medications that actually help people get weaned off of opioids, there's a lot of barriers to prescribing those, you know, medication-assisted treatment. Those are often hard to find a doctor who can actually prescribe that. And as you said, it's caught up in this kind of crazy pendulum swinging back and forth and collateral damage along the way. Indeed. In fact, just the other day I saw, I think it was on LinkedIn, someone showed the form that someone had to fill out to get the med that was necessary for, it wasn't actually opioids, it was for alcohol dependence. And it was like 500 questions a doctor was being forced to fill out in order to get those meds. So a lot of this is contingent upon identifying, you know, high value providers one way to start a fist fight is to start talking about all of the different methodologies by which high value providers are identified. Like there seems to be very little consensus on how one goes about that. How do you do it? Yeah, most commonly we're using data from some sources that we value. There's Perception Health, Quantros, there's some sources that are reasonably reliable. And then combine that with when you have proper primary care and those doctors are rooted in the community. You know, many doctors will tell you one of the best parts about being a doctor is when something happens to their family member. They know where to send and not send people. So you tap into that. And the big picture, what we'll do is say, where are the big spend areas and musculoskeletal? You can look at cancers and know which places have good outcomes as well as where there are affordable infusion centers and things like that. Bit by bit, you chip chip away at those high cost areas. In some cases, you have organizations like Validation Institute who validated a particular approach to a particular high cost area like cardiometabolic issues. And you're ascertaining what those outcomes are through your own data or your own patient experience information that you're collecting? Is, is that how you're doing it? Because it's very difficult to, you know, what is a good outcome really? I mean, it's a combination. Using the third party data prospectively and then using our own experience, we are believers in patient reported outcomes and what their goals are. And you have good primary care organizations, they're very focused in on that as well. So we're teaming up with them on that. Sounds like a very regional, you know, like you get a data set and then apply your own sort of due diligence to that data set. Would that be a good way to describe it? Yes, exactly. What kind of employers are behind some of the plans that you're talking about now making positive changes? You know, like, is there some characteristic that they all have in common? Like, you know, size? Is it a certain kind of CFO? Who are these self-insured employers? I would say where there's the greatest amount of activity is in the mid-market, the 50 to 5,000 employee organizations. It tends to be in 
businesses that not surprisingly don't have large margins and they really need to watch their dollars. So you see a lot of manufacturers, logistics companies, hospitality industry, often it's family owned businesses or companies that are employee stock owned, even cooperatives. I mean, there's different, it's not any, you know, all of those things at once, but all those things tend to be a predictor. If you sum it all up, the companies that actually believe and act on what almost every CEO says, which is employees are most valuable asset, if they actually believe and act on that, then they won't put those employees in harm's way in the status quo healthcare system. Once they realize there's actually a proven solution out there, then they want to learn more. But once they do, they see the impact. And particularly when somebody down the street has that impact, that's where you really see a flip in the market. Like we've seen that in Ohio, where the, say, auto dealer hears about the manufacturer or the school district doing something, and they can see it with their own eyes. Maybe their spouse is actually working in one of those organizations. Then, you know, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt that the status quo sometimes will put out there to keep people in all the plans just doesn't work anymore because they've experienced it themselves or their neighbor has experienced it. So you definitely see this happens regionally. Somebody takes the leap, as it were, in a certain geography, and then it sort of spreads outward from there. Yes. I mean, we see this kind of rule of threes where if you can get to the point where you have three employers in a given locale that has done it, then you're starting to really... You, you put in the processes and provider access and all that to really prove it out. Nobody really notices it at that point, but then you get to three times three, nine. Actually, some providers notice it. They probably have some direct contracts. Actually, rather than being dubious, they embrace it. And in some cases, they have it for their own employees. And you're basically starting to get some case studies around town. Then that's another inflection point. And then when you get to 27, you know, three times, three times three, then it's game over, right? It might be three to 5% of the employers in a given community. There's been a TED talk on social movements that says that when you get to three and a half percent, three and a half percent know everybody. That's where the market flips because they see, gosh, I just want what Bob and Sally have down the street. It's been working for them for years. So that's definitely the dynamic we see. It's it's very regionalized. And then it ex explodes out from there. Well, as you have said, healthcare is local. And I think that is just one more data point that, that shows it. I forget who said it now, but the future is here. It's just unevenly distributed. Yep. But, you know, somebody told me that if a hospital's revenue or a hospital's volume decreases by like 2%, they start to notice. So I could definitely see that if you've got 3.5% of patients in a marketplace who are being steered to high value providers or who are being helped in order to not need a, an unnecessary procedure or being pushed away from low value care, it wouldn't take a whole lot just given that 2% number for this to materially impact health systems in that particular area. Absolutely. And the other dynamic is a lot of times those business owners know the CEO or CFO of that hospital and they're like, hey, we would like to send our employees to your hospital, but we can't because it's too expensive and 
we need to have another arrangement and have very frank conversations. The good news is, you know, again, in air quotes, good news, there's so much value extraction and so many middlemen in the picture that if you remove them, you can arrive at that fair deal like we talked about earlier, where Pacific Steel has 5,000 direct contracts. Those include hospitals that see, okay, gosh, if I actually don't have to chase after patients and I can get paid a week rather than three months and, you know, dot, 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 then it's actually a win for them. Doug Hetherington certainly is a great example of having done that for years and years where he started in Eastern Idaho and then expanded all over the state of the countries. Doug Hetherington was on the show. Thanks to your recommendation. Thanks, Dave. That's episode 367. Katie Talento also was on the show talking about direct contracting IRL. That was episode 350. And coming up, spoiler alert, we're having someone come on from Northwell Direct. So stay tuned there. So you were talking about how the middle market, the employers with 50 to 5,000 employees are sort of leading the charge here. What percentage of the entire U.S. labor force is that? Like there's 190 million people, I think, who get their insurance through their employer. What percentage of that are we talking about who could potentially be in one of these more forward-looking organizations? Typically, we see the mid-market being about 60%, sometimes up two-thirds of the employees. But, you know, 60% is a as a rough piece. And as you mentioned, you don't have to move a big chunk of it, even if it was only 50%. That's still, you're talking, you know, 90, 100 million Americans. So it's not a small number in that bucket. Yeah, for sure. That's a little bit unexpected. You know, a lot of times you think that the jumbo employers are the ones that are employing the most employees around the country, but that seems to not be the case. No, we like to fetishize big in this country. And I'm all for jumbo employers doing the right thing. But, you know, if you've read any of Clay Christensen's disruptive innovation work, innovation doesn't come from the big employers anymore. It comes from more of a bottoms up, these poorly served markets, and then it moves upstream. So what are your next steps here? What are you looking to do next? As I mentioned Earlier on the contracting, what we've done is said, okay, we're going to just chip away at this. We've started with, we think it's the dream team of subject matter experts and ERISA lawyers and go contract by contract, clause by clause. I mean, it's painstaking work. And we're making these insights initially available to the health Rosetta community. From there, we will open source the contract language, the checklists you need to have. When you look at these health plans, put aside the dollars. Outcomes are so fantastic. I mean, it would be the blockbuster drug of the century if you could put it into a pill. And so there's no way we would keep that to ourselves. That's why we're going to open source that once it's battle tested. And we've already open source kind of the the broad brush strokes right through my books and our website. You can find out these approaches, but we want to go to the very hands-on day-to-day, literally clause by clause level, and then make that available to everybody. And where can people go for more information about the work that you're doing? They can go to healthrosetta.org. If they go to healthrosetta.org slash map, they can have an accredited advisor in their area. If they're over, say, 250 employees and they want a deeper dive, you know, they can contact me, Dave at healthrosetta.org. If they're a solution that has verifiable quadruple aim results, we invite them to reach out to us as well. Dave Chase, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thank you so much, Stacey. I really enjoyed it. 
Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.